Thank you for joining us here on CanadianMarketWatch.com where myself, Jim Chuck, and George Sander. Talk to people in the industry. Find out what they have to say. We'll ask the tough questions. We'll ask lots of questions. If you want to join us here on Canadian Market Watch, reach out to us and be a guest on CanadianMarketWatch.com. Join the discussion. Welcome to Canadian Market Watch. Today, George Sanders and myself, Jim Check, welcome Mike Ballinger to the podcast. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, Mike is uh, founder and advisor, uh, founder and uh, editor of GGM Advisory, and is a well-known market commentator, and uh, that follows up a long and notable career as a stockbroker investment advisor out of Toronto. So, Mike, why don't you fill us in a little bit on some of uh, the details of your background? Well, I was uh, <clears throat> I was lucky enough to get a hockey scholarship to St. Louis University on the banks of the Mississippi River back in '72, and I, you know, after playing some junior A for with uh, some of the notables of the of the era. Most notably, Marcel Dion went on to play against Guy Lafleur in the Memorial Cup Finals in 1970-71. I elected to take the college route, and that was the best move I ever made in my life. Uh, It was in St. Louis that I was introduced to a finance professor that became the dean of finance for the university, uh, Dr. Yeager. And he was the first guy that handed me a book uh, written in 1950-something, and it was The Secrets of the Federal Reserve. Um, the creature from Jekyll Island, and uh, and I read that from cover to cover about three times, and it became obvious to me that there was a there was a hidden agenda there and a diabolical one uh, when it comes to the management of money. And it, before I get off on a long tangent on what I did, what got me was the uh, was a quote from Baron Rothschild who said, "You don't need to worry about controlling the population of a country through." The military or the National Guard, he says, give me the currency and I'll control the country. And if you look back to the history of the Federal Reserve since 1913, um, that they have done, it has been banks running the country uh, essentially for the last hundred years. And uh, we're getting the final comeuppance of that um, in the events of the last four weeks. And uh, I wrote a piece last weekend in which I talked about it was called false flag, and this whole problem with the financial markets—it didn't wasn't caused by the coronavirus. It yeah. was—it started in September with the repo operations by the Fed, and I won't, you know, get into a long econ 101 dissertation here, but that's what started the whole mess. It was the Federal Reserve deciding to pump massive amounts of liquidity into the system in the United States, which trickled into all the central banks around the world. That was kind of like the first crack, wasn't it? It was. It and, was. And and a lot of people, and you and I actually talked about this at the time, you go like, did you just see that? Like, am I missing something? And it kind of got, got glossed over, didn't it? It did. And it was the, the spin doctors in the mainstream media, uh, they really went to work, George. You're absolutely on the money there. So just anyway, to... Sorry, just, I interrupted no, where you were going. That's okay. And our... Um, just to start off a bit, you're, where are we calling you? Where are you at, Mike? I, I will live and, and work in Port Perry, Ontario. Okay. It's a little community, uh, uh, kind of a resort community, about two and a half hours northeast of Toronto. Right, and then George um, is in his home, and I'm I'm here, so that's why our sound quality may not be the best. We're not in studio, so we're all on cell phones and that in this, in this corona. We're all bunkered in is yeah, what we we're are. All in this corona crisis where they've kind of... Made us all kind of go in our little separate corners for sure. So, are you are you thinking that they kind of were waiting for an event like this, or this is an event that was fortuitous for this to happen, or or they took oh, advantage of the event? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not smart enough to have that answer, but I am cynical enough to raise the question that could it, and it, it was in the first paragraph of my last letter where I said, could the could could the events of the last month not have been caused? By COVID nineteen, and I just talk, you know, it's not not in a uh, not some tome of, of of data mining. It was simply looking at what the headlines were. Mm-hmm. You know, we went for three and a half months into January with this temporary 
liquidity injection by the Fed getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where they were they had reflated their their the Fed balance sheet, the balloon, they had reflated it to where it was nine, ten, twelve months ago when they decided to normalize their balance sheet. So you know, without me getting too technical, and it, it, there was something that wasn't right. George, you and I talked about that. And I, I have a great graphic that I put together, and it's a picture of a bubble. And inside it is a big fat banker and all the collateral that bankers need to survive, um, which is, you know, mortgage loans and, and uh, gold, uh, not gold, sorry, mortgage loans and auto loans and credit cards and all this, all this stuff that they've loaned out 50 times over. That's the bubble. And the hand that's with the pin in it that's approaching the bubble in the middle of the hand is COVID-19. COVID-19 was the, the prick that popped the bubble. Yeah. This massive debt bomb that's been lurking out there for years and years and years. Not just in the United States. It's you know just as prevalent here in Canada. The real estate markets in Vancouver and Toronto inflated beyond belief uh, to levels that they never had to get to that level. And the, the Vancouver people know that better than anybody what the cause of it was, and the Toronto people are in denial. But you know, it's a bubble. Every it's the bubble. Everything society we live in. George, and we're already seeing the debt on commercial real estate, the stuff that's been securitized, and the stuff that was issued just as bonds. Uh, we're seeing that in the last week come under huge distress, aren't we? Yeah. As in blow up. And that's one of the things the Fed did last Sunday. For the first time in the history of the Federal Reserve, they're buying mortgage-backed securities, mortgage loans. They're going to be buying the, the bad debt off the banks. Uh, and and what it's like it's like a flashback. It's like deja vu to 2008. You know, it's 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 private profits, but socialized losses. And uh, if, if, if your audience that's thinks that's not so, true capitalism, is it? No, it sure is. It is not. No. Yeah. And and you know you you hear a lot, and and I'm I'm quite active in in responding to this because you hear a lot of the the death of capitalism, and I like to say to people, you know, capitalism is based on free markets, right? And and we haven't had markets without intervention of a central bank or a government for a long, long time. It's true. So George is telling me that you're a hard money guy. Maybe explain that to our listeners, what that means. Well, it's, it's not hard money versus soft money. It's more, not so much hard money, but sound money principles. Is When I was educated by the Jesuit priests in, in, uh, in St. Louis, they were huge believers in sound money and fiscal management. Every, they were all Republicans and non-spenders they were conservative as heck and uh, and what they taught in their in the curricula for the business classes was the whole every tenant behind it every 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 foundation of sound money and what that basically is it for the average layman out there it's managing your debts and balancing your checkbook it's that simple mm-hmm. you know we as citizens when we run into problems money-wise we can't go out and fictitiously create it in our basement on a printing machine, or we go to jail for counterfeiting. But the federal government, everywhere, not just in the U.S., Canada, they can turn around and and create phony paper and call it currency, and give it merit. And they don't. There's not one thing that happens to it. They can break a law and not go to jail. And that's that's where my 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 cynicism and my anger gets built up. Sound money is basically the proper stewardship of a country's currency, which means you have a balanced budget, you don't go crazy with wars and $18 trillion invading other countries like the U.S. has. You know, and, and, and I'm not going to get into a political debate here, but, but at some point, you know, the debasement of the currency, we've seen that happen how many times in history? I mean, most recently, uh, going back as far as some of the old people can remember, was Weimar, 1921 to 1923 in Germany. Sorry, guys, bear with me. And and after after what happened after World War One, the reparations payments were so bad that uh, by by the uh, by the Allies that the, the Germany couldn't afford the reparations payments, and they had to start printing money. No different than what we've seen in the last 
two weeks mm-hmm. in the in the U.S. and, and, and abroad. And has happened in South America, like in the last couple of years, particularly in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And that's you the know, most recent in Venezuela, Zimbabwe in the 1990s. Absolutely, and and if you go back, if you go back to antiquity, uh, it was going on then as well. Well, the Romans. Part of the reasons their empire died was that they debased the silver coin. Yep. that used to pay the centurions and all the army. So, so you know, again, without being a, a history lesson, sound money, to, just, to, to answer your question, is basically our government balancing its books, um, running a fiscal neutral, uh, and, and the whole idea of central banking was to, 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 to deflate the money supply in boom times to, so as to prevent inflation, but but in 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 bad times, uh, they would reflate the money supply in order to defeat deflation. And somewhere between point A and point Z, they forgot the purpose. And and now it has a political agenda where it's used to get incumbents reelected. It's used to advance people with agendas. It's used to benefit the elite. Uh, you know the Amazons and the Apples of the world. I mean, they get absolutely total preferential treatment from anywhere from taxation to uh, to, uh, to to import-export duties. We've and, never and, created so many billionaires. Well, but that that's the good that's the good side of capitalism yeah. because early investors made a lot of money on that. Mm-hmm. That's the good side. But like every maturing industry or every maturing you know forest, you know the forest has to burn down to create new growth. And I'm not saying that our economy has to necessarily burn down, but what we're seeing in the last month, I think, um, sort of, it's a, it's it, it, it's a perfect dovetail to the next discussion. Is well, instead of having a portfolio of RRSP or an U.S. 401ks, you know, stacked with growth stocks, no bonds, all growth, all multiples, you know, several points higher than the than the Case-Shiller average PE multiple of you know, sort of 16 times earnings. And everybody has, because of the moral hazard created by intervention by the by the Federal Reserve, in supporting the stock market and supporting the bond market, supporting the the the, the absolute obsession amongst younger investors, in you know the the weed the flavor of the month being crypto a few years back, and then it became marijuana about two years ago, all of that has burst now, and and all they're left with is. The complete opposite of sound money—they're left with paper. Mm-hmm. And and if for, if younger people were trained that, you know, a nice little you know twenty twenty you know twenty percent over five different asset classes, you know, the true the true definition of a balanced portfolio, with rebalancing every quarter, you know, you'd be able to ride out these things. But I don't know any young person right now that has a twenty percent allocation to, to precious metals, which are defined as hard assets. They have no counterparty risk to them. Nobody so, can claim it. Not like a bond where you can get redeemed. So no, you take those. So some of the Sorry? people's questions right now are like, we're seeing like what should be driving gold way higher. And it, it does react for, you know, a day or two and then it kind of pulls back. And then the question for lots of people is, is why, why isn't it going higher than if, if it's supposed to act like that? I, I heard it on Bloomberg um, a couple of days ago where they were talking with one guy and they said, well, you wouldn't buy uh, gold right now because you only buy it in an inflationary environment. And then the guy said, well, we're, we've been in an inflationary environment all the time. Like the dollar buys less and less and less. You keep looking at CPI as opposed to what's really happening with the dollar. Absolutely correct. Uh, the, but uh, the comeback to that, it, you know, is this, which currency, which country are you talking about? If you're sitting in Turkey, or Bob mentioned earlier, or George mentioned earlier, of Venezuela. Uh, even in Canada, we're hitting all-time highs in gold in domestic currencies of and everywhere. Most, and most currencies, yeah. Yeah, well, virtually every one of them. All the major G20 are all at new highs. Mm-hmm. The only one not is the United States. Okay, and that's the dollar regime. That's the the, the, the final death throes of the, of the petrodollar regime. And, you know, again, without getting off on some tangent, mm-hmm. you know, the, the gold is, what it is, is it's a store of value in inflationary times and in deflationary times. 
it, it is also a deflation hedge. Um, I, I always have to clarify something. A lot of people point to the fact that home, that home stake mining in the 1930s during the Great Depression went up something like 85 or 185 percent. Yeah. And I have to quickly correct people and tell them why that happened and that because back then it was pegged to the price of gold. And uh, the gold price was pegged at $20 an ounce to the U.S. dollar. And what happened during that period of time was when the, when the deflationary depression came in, everything deflated, real estate, commercial, you name it. But gold, gold prices did not because they were pegged. Now, the offset to that in 2020 is that there's only one form of collateral that the central banks have left. They don't, you can't use long-term bonds. You can't do short-term bonds. You can't use real estate. You know, currencies in themselves are not collateral. So when people talk about their dollar reserves, they can't use that as collateral. That's not really collateral because it's paper. The only collateral they've got is the ownership of, 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 by the G20 of the, of the top 10 central banks and their gold ownership. And they've got, you know, the U.S. has got 8,133 metric tons of gold. And a lot of people like to question whether they really have it. That's a discussion for another day. Mm-hmm. But if everything blows up, the, the, the countries that have got all the gold, they at least can, if they reprice gold to a much higher level, or if it reprices itself, then that gold represents collateral against which they can function. Kind of a reset, yeah. Yes, exactly. A reset. So in our last, uh, our last podcast, uh, Jim and I were discussing uh, and and... We, we taped it uh, after gold had peaked at 1700 US and it looked like it was onward and upward and then it got smacked down with everything else and and yet as that was happening uh, the demand for physical started to go through the roof and yesterday we saw what might be the first crack uh in the gold market blowing up at least in terms of uh were defined as the inability to deliver uh, f- uh physical gold against the future promise to do so and we saw the normal discrepancy between spot price for physical and futures prices and there's always a there's always a spread there but we saw that spread blow out like crazy um monday early tuesday morning while we were still asleep and then and then once once everybody was up at uh, uh 6 a.m back east um and so i i wanted your thoughts on this apparent disconnect now between physical demand and gold trading on on the comex you have a nice name for it the crimex but perhaps before you could uh, tell us your thoughts on that, maybe give us uh, 30, 45 seconds, a minute, on just some of the broadly based, the mechanics of what is COMEX, what is a futures contract, how does it work? Sure. Uh, using gold as the example, um, a futures contract is a promise by the seller of that contract to deliver the underlying commodity, in this case, gold. The most commonly traded contract, there's many in MEX, and the most commonly one is a 100-ounce contract. <laughs> so the owner of that particular contract, if he decides around the end of each month to exercise it, meaning uh, to take delivery of the gold that it represents, uh, the clearing corporation, which is a separate entity in Chicago, has to gather up the money and the gold, and they have to deliver it to the holder of the contract who's exercised. And the, the, the difficulty with, with the gold market and, and, and is, is as follows, that there are bullion banks that act on behalf of major mining companies, and their primary function is to hedge. So if a company's got a million ounces a year of production and their break-even cost is $1,500 an ounce, they'll sell forward one year out a contract guaranteeing $1,600 sale price for all their gold. And it's up to the bullion banks to make sure that's honored. So the holder of that contract, be it a large fund or a a jewelry manufacturer who needs that gold, uh, they'll turn around and and they'll match off buyer versus seller. 
where the where the discrepancy happens and where I, I give the song name of Crimex to the Comex. It's I'll, I'll explain that. Crimex comes from the old term Comex, which is the, the Commodity Exchange Inc. in Chicago. The nickname for all the floor traders was Comex. The, 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 it, the Comex was acquired several years ago by the Chicago Mer Mercantile Exchange. So it's actually called the CME. But to people that have a few gray hairs in their head that have been trading gold for 40 years like I have, it'll always be the Crimex. Because i I tell you a little anecdote. Um, I had a trader friend of mine. I was a licensed commodity broker, so I used to call Chicago and talk to a gentleman by the name of Jimmy. I won't mention his last name, but Jimmy was classic New Yorker that was actually working in Chicago. And uh, one day um, I was watching the market and everything else in the market was going up because of some inflation numbers, are, but the gold market was going down. And I called Jimmy up and I said, Jimmy, Jimmy, I, what is going on? Everything, copper's flying, platinum's flying, silver's flying. The gold market's down 2.4, like what? He says, Mike, he says, don't you get it yet? I said, what's that? He says, the gold market's rigged. It's rigged. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing the rigging. Get over it. You know, on the phone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, 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 the Chicago, the, 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 the uh, Comex in Chicago, the, the CME, um, its proper purpose, and it has a great function in other areas. You know, farmers can hedge crops with soybeans and corn. Uh, you know, oil users like the airlines can buy crude oil futures contracts to hedge against rising prices, which affects their, their fuel costs. But the the one, well, there's two markets that are absolutely a cesspool for manipulation, intervention, interference, fully condoned. Oh, and this is documented well by the GATA group, Bill Murphy and Chris Powell are my friends, and, and that's the Gold Antitrust Action Committee's documented this, going back to 1998. But the gold and silver markets because you've got this sort of shroud of mystery over whether or not the seller of gold and silver is a hedger or not, um, those of us that are, you know, firm believers in, in the in the advocacy of free money, of sound money, you know, what we want to see is we want to see real and true price discovery. Yes. And and that's what we're not getting right now in that exchange. So uh, so again, just on on the mechanics of it, it. it it uh, futures markets start out as you say, whereby the underlying uh, producer of a commodity or user of a commodity can manage their cash flow. But it, is it possible if I were to go into the market and, and buy a, a call option, buy the, the, the right to, to purchase so many ounces of gold at a future price and future delivery date, that the seller of that instrument to me may not have any gold at all. That's correct. And there's, the, again, one of the mechanisms they have is it's, it's like a, a quasi force majeure in, in, in contract law. There's a, there's a little clause that get kicked in called force majeure where if, if you, if somebody has agreed to take on 300 million pounds of copper from Cadelco and an earthquake cripples the country, they can, Cadelco can exercise force majeure. Well, it's a different story in the, in the in the futures markets and options markets, because this has happened and it's been going on for ten years. Um, at delivery time, the first notice day, it's called, is when people have to let the exchange know that they are going to take delivery. There's been occasions where they there's been massive exercising of options and, and futures contracts to take delivery. The whole, the seller of that you know, short the owner of that short position and the guy that's obligated to deliver, all he needs to do is say, I'm going to elect for cash settlement. And instead of delivering up the actual commodity, all he does is take the difference between the price that was guaranteed, the buy price guarantee and the current market. So let's say it was $1,600 gold as he has to deliver it up uh, because the other buyers got the right to take it off at 1600 and it's 1700 he doesn't have to deliver the gold. He can just put up the hundred dollar difference times the number of contracts, and he's free and clear. So, so really, we have a we have a thing on on um, a price of gold as opposed to actually gold, then because you're just trading the price of gold. Well, the holder of the short position, and I don't want to get too technical on you, but 
In other words, the guy that's obligated to deliver the gold has an out clause. Mm-hmm, it's the I'm only saying. place in commerce around the world, saving a natural disaster, where somebody's offside on a trade and he can wiggle out of it. Mm-hmm. So by the, writing I, yeah, a check. So I'm saying the actual thing is you're only trading the price of gold, not actually gold, because if there's an out, then there never was the the gold. Which which, which brings me to the con, you know, the conclusion I've drawn. And, I, and George and a number of other people that I talk to regularly have drawn the same conclusion. It's what's called a bifurcated market. There's two markets for precious metals right now. Mm-hmm. There's a market for what we call the paper traders, and that's guys who just want to trade it. They don't care. I mean, it's trading on the COMEX at six. Then there's people that actually need the gold, jewelry users, manufacturers, refiners. And the real price of gold is where that physical commodity changes. Like, that's the true price discovery. And what George is referring to earlier is guys taking delivery of several metric tons. If tonight's price closed with 1647, I guarantee you they're not getting delivery at 1647. Right. Yes, for sure. They're getting delivery at 1720 or 1680, but, you know, depending on where the premium is at the time. Uh, I got sent by one of my subscribers uh, a screenshot of uh, a company, I won't mention the name of the company, but I'm looking at the quote on my machine for May Silver at 14, uh, sorry, uh, 1312. And there's a one ounce silver buffalo being offered for 2422 yeah, US. Quite $24. Premium, so, but that's a double. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with a 30% premium in tight markets, but how can there be a, like a 100% premium? So where's the silver actually changing hands? And this is where it becomes like a a murder mystery by Agatha Christie. (laughs) Because one of the biggest bullion banks in the world, J.P. Morgan, they've got a 275 million ounce vault position. And they are also the largest holders of short positions in the silver market. Hmm. So are they hedging that vault position? Or is it really them trading for their pro account? Either way you cut it, there are what are called position limits. Yeah. And those position limits are regularly violated. And when it's brought to the attention of the regulators, the CF, the, uh, the, uh, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the SEC, you don't get any, I mean, there's, there's, they just turn a blind eye. I, I, the, and therein the... for your listeners is where the opportunity is created because there comes a point where all markets trade free. And when, when these artificial governors on the prices of gold and silver are liberated, that's where the opportunity for younger investors is going to come. It's going to be, and not just younger ones, everybody. When, 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 when you finally, when they finally reprice everything to reflect the true rate of inflation. And again, I'm not referring to the cost of a loaf of bread or a gallon of milk. The, the inflation we have seen since the meltdown in 2008 has been $4.5 trillion yeah, okay, in, in one area alone. Yeah, let's move to the opportunities. But first, let's, sure. I just want to ask one question, though, is how does the oil, the petrodollar, figure into this when they, the Saudis and the um, Russians got into that spat and drove oil down to 747, I think, and, and Alberta oil? Like, where, where does that figure in? Well... Uh, I'll put. This is going to sound almost rudimentary and maybe a little bit amateurish, but it's this simple. The Saudis agree to pay for oil in U.S. dollars in order for the USS Nimitz to be parked off off their their coastline. The Americans are the policemen, and they get preferential treatment on how oil is traded. For that very reason, that's it. In a nutshell, there's not. People ask me what it's going to take to put gold at twenty thousand dollars an ounce, or oil at two hundred bucks a barrel. And it's, it's quite simple in my mind. I've been saying this for 20 years. It's when the USS Nimitz pulls into Gibraltar for a refit and they say, no, they're not going to take the credit card. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's yeah. it. Mm-hmm. The, the Americans are the policemen. And, they, and up until recently, dovetails back to our discussion about repo action in September, but in the last 10 years, the Chinese and the Russians have moved from out of the top 10 to four and five respectively in terms of their central bank gold holdings. Mm -hmm. And these are two countries that are 
geographically aligned. Uh, they're not necessarily politically aligned, but I mean, there's certainly got to be some sort of, um, shall we say, cooperation between two countries who share a big border. And they all, you know, Putin and Z, and Z they, they, you know, they've run into problems with Trump. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the end of the day, what ends up happening is um, the petrodollar is, it's when you talk about it in that term, petrodollar, you're really talking about uh, buggy whips in 1921. It's it's going to soon be old news, and when it is old news, uh, it might get nominated in a, in a new SDR, or maybe the you know, the powers that be decide to do whatever they got to do. But I'll walk you through a theory that I have, and you know, Russia and the Saudis got into a a, a war about three and a half four weeks ago, and that's what caused the thirty dollar drop in oil. Yep. Right. Well. You know, it's it's kind of interesting. What up until that point in time, there was a battle by politicians in the United States to keep shale functional, and the Saudis and the Russians just bankrupted the entire U.S. oil industry. Certainly, the shale industry. Absolutely, and it's Alberta, done. and Alberta. So this was a this was a it was two things. It, it, it was a market share play by the Russians. And secondly, it was a petrocurrency play, because as long as the Americans are self-sufficient in energy, then they've got the hammer. But now they're not, because shale is going to be shut in. And the, sec- and the secondary consequence of that was uh, the demise of a portion of the co- corporate bond market that's related to the financing of the shale oil business. Precisely. So, you know, somebody asked me uh, about a month and a half, well, about three months ago, what I thought was really going on behind the scenes with with the repo action in September. Why, when you get headlines when the President of the United States is tweeting out how wonderful the economy is and retail sales growth is great and the stock market's within a quarter of a percent of all-time highs, why did the Fed suddenly start flooding the world with liquidity? Yeah, exactly. What did they know? What did they see on the horizon? Did they see, they certainly didn't see a, a pandemic, COVID-19. That's not what it was. I think what they saw, or if, there, if you want to speculate on this, they saw trouble coming in the oil market, uh, which means the bond market, yep. which means the entire credit system in the States, and all of which, if it does turn out to be a series of dominoes, or teetering treacherously, until when? Until a bunch of people in China started getting sick. And just like a domino effect, everything started falling. And, and I think that's what we've gone through the last month. But here's an interesting point. I looked at, I'm a great technical guy, and I look at charts of stocks and commodities and bonds. and The only bull market going back to 2015 that is still intact as we speak is gold. It did not break the trend line drawn off the 2015 lows. Silver did. Oil did, stocks and bonds did, everything's, I mean, not bonds, forget that. Everything did, but you're right, gold did not. Gold is in good shape, and for younger people, or people that have, of any age, that haven't yet invested in it, um, it's been around for 5,000 years, um, and we've all heard and read the newsletters and the promotional pieces that get sent out. But, you know, if you you cut away all the, 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 the froth of, We've got a, you know, a stock that's going to go to the moon for you. And you look at the history of what gold has done. There's, you don't have to look back 25 years. You look back three weeks mm-hmm. to if you'd, and the portfolio I run at the, uh, at the advisory service, um, everybody was long the gold market. And gold bullion, physical gold, uh, when as of March the 15th, was down 2% for the year to date. And the S&P was down 28%, and the Dow was down 32%. Yeah. Gold's role is to protect your portfolio against major drawdowns. Yeah. And it did that. And you know, uh, bo- both uh, you and Jim earlier in the conversation, we're, we're talking about uh, gold priced in uh, other currencies being at or near all-time highs. So as a Canadian... Businessman, as uh, my 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 assets are here in Canada, 
Uh, gold, for me, has done exactly what it's supposed to do, and that is preserve its purchasing power. Especially so, in Canadian, like the Canadian dollar went from 76 yep. to 68 and a half in a week and a half. I've, I've used this analogy with some young people because they don't understand gold that well. I've, I've been in Kelowna for 20 years now, and I said if I would come to Kelowna 20 years ago and I would have buried $280,000 of cash in the ground, and the house was worth $280,000, and I would have buried $280,000 of gold in the ground, today... The house is worth about $1.2 million. The gold is worth about $1.6 million, And the cash is worth $280,000. There you just, go. But it just doesn't buy very much, right? Like I could buy the garage maybe. And I think that's, that's, that to some people is kind of how the light bulb goes on. Because it's like, because I think a lot of people don't, they, they're looking for inflation numbers, not necessarily what's happening to the currency, right? Because I just looked at our credit card because we've got a lot of U.S. expenses for our business. And it was one48 for the exchange off on the credit card statement. So that's that's going to wow. hurt lots of businesses, right? So um, you, that you have bet. to buy. Um, and it's great for the people that are exporting to the U.S., and that's why they kind of push our dollar down, I guess. But but well, it's surely... Here's, here's, go ahead. Sorry. Here's, the, here's another thing that's interesting. Uh, I sent out subscribers a chart uh, about a week and a half ago. and Because a lot of people haven't gone through what we just went through the last month. And we're, I shouldn't say went through, what we're going through. Right. Because um, it's not over yet. But what's really interesting is <clears throat> if you look, you never, you never act, what I never do is I never listen to the headlines or read the headlines and believe them or, or make investment decisions based on the headlines. What I want to see is what is the general response of the people that have the power to crises? So all you have to do is pop back to 2009, 2008 when Henry Paulson, the, the Secretary of the Treasury, was on his hands and knees begging Congress for a bailout of the banking industry. And he got it. And gold had come down from 1,028 to about 690 in the liquidity crash, the liquidity squeeze caused by the crash. And then within a very short period of time, two years to be exact, the market stock market bottomed in March 4th, two, uh, 2009, Gold between 2009 and 2011 went from 690 to 1900. Yeah, and not all stock markets. I mean, not not everything did that. And you have to realize that had you bought an ounce of gold in 2001 at 255 dollars an ounce, and you look at it today at 17 well 1650, it's actually outperformed everything: stocks, bonds, real estate in that time frame. Yes, it has. So it's got its history. And it's not a bunch of guys wild-eyed with pitchforks and torches <laughs> running around screaming and trying to, you know, you know, as, a, as an unruly lynch mob. So That's not what gold, gold investors are like I described. They're the Jesuit priest in St. Louis that believes in sound money principles. Well, we have a lot of history with our stock market and, and our resource sector for sure. Where, where are the opportunities in that regard for young people? Like, where, where should they be looking and, and what, it, what are the opportunities? Is it, is it the bullying itself or is it some the mining stock? Should they be buying mid-tier, senior-tier, juniors? Firstly, uh, because of the conditions we've just all gone through, I mean, there's a lot of fear out there right now. And, and um, I, I'm going to give you a little anecdote that'll, that'll dovetail into a, a direct answer to your question, but 1987, I was a broker, a young, well, sort of an eight, nine-year semi-veteran broker, but I got very nervous about the market in the summer of 87, and I, I went to, uh, I, I went to, uh, decided to, to protect my, myself and my clients by buying gold mining stocks, which historically the gold market always moves counter, to counter trend to stocks. And sure enough, on October 1997, the biggest crash in history occurred. 23.7% decline in one day. Alcan went from 40 to 20. Uh, and I thought for uh, that in being a, a student of markets that gold would perform properly. And gold itself in the next week after the crash went from 425 to 503. My portfolio, which had a lot of margin on it, of mining stocks, mid-tier and juniors, uh, went from $300,000 of gross value with an equity value of 160 
to $16,000. The TSE Gold Index got cut in half, despite gold bullion going up in price. Uh, I was in my office about two weeks later, and the famous Vancouver-based promoter, Murray Pezum, called me. And I, I don't know, I was, I was in seriously depressed state at the time. And he wanted to give me an idea, a junior mining stock that he was he was promoting. And I, to, I told him to save his breath. I didn't have any money left. I was cooked. I was done. And uh, he proceeded to tell me about a little discovery play in the BC interior in a place called the Golden Triangle. And he told me to buy a little company called Calpine Resources, which was his company, who had 50% interest in the play, with the other 50% being held by a company called Consolidated Stikeen Resources. That at that time was trading at 80 cents. This is the SK Creek discovery mm-hmm. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to save that for last. But. Oh, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It turned out to be one of the biggest gold discoveries and marketplace in my 43 year career. And what happened was, and I think the viewers will get a kick out of this, I had planned to pay my mortgage off, and my then wife was. Uh, rather upset with me that uh, I didn't do that, that I elected to gamble in the stock market at the time. So I took the remaining $16,000 and about 20,000 shares of Stikine at 80 cents. Nine months later, when it was $15 bid after the discovery, I was told not to sell it, but I did in order to recoup my crash losses. And the man I was talking to was a veteran broker out of Calgary, and he said, don't sell it. It's going higher. And I sold it, and sure enough, six months after that, it was taken over for about, I think it was 50 some odd dollars a share. So 80 cents to 50 on a resource discovery in British Columbia. And that's my famous SK Creek story. The reason I bring that up is there's, 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 comp- there's, there's companies you can buy that are proxies for gold, bullion, sound money ownership. And they're the senior and intermediate producers. And, and, uh, and there's some very well-run companies. Unfortunately, in the last number of years, the Canadian senior gold producers have been uh, run like they're like private grocery stores uh, where the insiders have made really bad acquisitions and, you know, buybacks. And I mean, just they've deserved to be underperformers up until recently. And uh, I think that uh, they've learned their lesson because institutional investors and retail investors have largely left the gold mining stocks alone, despite gold prices being well up in the rafters. What we've seen is multiple contraction where PE multiples have gone down because there's not a lot of faith in the management abilities. That culling that's occurred, a lot of the bad managers are now gone. Yes. And and we've got guys like Mark Fristo who's running Barrick now, who's a South African, and man, oh man, I mean that guy is like Winston Churchill of the mining business. So he's turned Barrick around and but that's the senior stuff. Me being a, a kind of a, a quasi you know, I'm a, I don't have a degree in geology, but I feel like I've absorbed it through osmosis over the years. Uh, I'm a, I'm, I have a little bit of a flair for gambling myself, but I just love exploration plays. Unfortunately, they haven't treated anybody uh, well in the last, well, certainly since 2011. There's been very few. We had Great Bear last year in 2019, which our, our my subscriber service had and recommended it to, after the discovery uh, in Red Lake at $2.30. We sold it in August at 9.04. Now that's, you know, that's four and a quarter times your money in less than a year. So, and without taking a lot of risk, it was a bona fide discovery and it was a, it was trading on the TSX venture, but you can count those on one hand compared to, you know, three or 400 that crashed and burned because of skullduggery or shenanigans or bad luck or whatever. I, I My own personal opinion is you want to go for companies that can demonstrate the ability to establish a reserve. Either they're drilling a prospect that has got his, history of production or by way of a 43-101 report have been authorized to say they own X number of ounces of gold. Once you know they've actually got the gold and a third party has told you and, and signed off on it, which means the BC Securities Commission or the Ontario Securities Commission has to sign off on it. Now you know they've got gold, which means then it becomes a proxy, a leverage play on the price of gold. And I have a list of four or five, not many, about three or four companies that I'm currently recommending that fall into that category. And um, and so, they're the kind that trade in the pennies 
but they have a resource. And because everybody's been so preoccupied and obsessed with crypto and weed and trading the S&Ps, these companies have been largely orphaned. And, you know, I, what I see happening now, especially with this watershed moment we've just gone through the last three weeks with tremendous volatility in markets, is I think money is going to flow back to this sector because it's not expensive by any stretch of the imagination. Sentiment is still, I mean, it's black bearish Absolutely. for the junior mining exploration play and developers. Absolutely. So therein lies the opportunities for yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, We've we've put together this idea of bringing people like yourself on the podcast to to put it out there because uh, in in a lot of conversation uh, going down the same road that you just eloquently summarized uh, about the opportunity coming up, uh, Jim and I concluded that most folks under the age of fifty have not had the SK type experiences in the Canadian uh, mineral resource uh, exploration space. Um, They haven't been exposed to it. The space has been in a bear market, um, except for a couple months in early 2016. It's been in a bear market since 2011. Many of those participants in, in spec markets would have done reasonably well if they were in early and out before the end in the cannabis space. Uh, but but they don't have any experience with, at the end of the day, you're in markets to make money, so the wealth creation of, of our space, but also uh, also it's, uh, it's a lot of fun as well. Now, we're not putting our money to work to have fun. Uh, we can do that in a lot of other ways, but uh, while you're investing, it, it, is, it is always uh, uh, interesting to have something that actually captures one's imagination and attention. And then just to follow up with, with your SK example on, on something you said about, uh, you know, there's lots of stories out there. There's lots of interesting, you know, gee, these rocks look great. Let's put a drill hole in them and see what they have. And you do that, and they're interesting rocks, but they don't have any economic value to them. So there's lots of those plays. But... I recall in the Eskay Creek, the discovery hole was something like 100 feet of one ounce gold, something like that. Unheard of. Unheard of. Absolutely spectacular. And the stocks rocketed. And then the confirmation hole came out. So the hole number two or whatever the number was. But it was like, okay, is this a one-hole wonder or not? And that's obviously the question everybody asked. And the confirmation hole was 75 feet of three-quarters of an ounce. Spectacular in and of itself. But because it was a little bit shorter and a little bit lower grade than the discovery hole, down the stock came temporarily. Mm-hmm. And, and I had was working in the business at the time uh, in the finance part of the business with some very well-known, famous players, uh, uh, market participants, and that's when those guys backed up the truck. So, yeah. Mike, as you were just saying, uh, you know, these uh, a report comes out or this comes out and it's now verified, even though you might not have got in right away, on the first hole, after the second hole, all of those sophisticated investors were able to say, okay, this is real. And as they say, they backed up the truck and there was a lot of wealth created in the stock market play of SK Creek. But beyond that, that mine went on to be one of the highest, if not the highest grade gold producers for more than a decade, uh, and the tax revenue to the province of British Columbia, uh, the the jobs that it created, the boom that it created, beyond just the stock market wins for speculators, was immense. And it's important, George, to remember that how that was financed 
was through small investors. Absolutely. By way of private placements at the time. And uh, that's one of the things that I, I love to do and I participate in and help companies with. There's a huge opportunity in the private placements uh, 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 business for companies that are not just looking for gold, but they've already found it and looking to develop it. So, you know, that it's important for investors to understand that when they write a check to go into one of these financings, that the, the wealth creation that you just described is a direct result of the risk appetites of the average investor, not not the multi-billionaire. It's people with relatively modest net worth statements that finance these things. So we to, have uh, we have a, to, to maybe close off on yeah. that, Jerry. I think we want to wrap up here. Yeah, but, we have about ten uh, minutes tops left, or six minutes, I guess. But yeah, um, just. Uh, uh, when I when I was in university, my best buddy uh, had always worked uh, throughout high school as a paperboy, so he had a fair bit of he had a fair bit of cash in his savings account. And one day I was telling him about uh, this project that my father was working on. My father is uh, uh, was and is a uh, geologic engineer, and he had this early stage. Uh, exploration which became a big development play uh, in, in on the Queen Charlotte Islands in, in BC. So my buddy bought, I don't know, $3,500, $5,000 worth of the stock at 30 cents. A year and a half later, he sold that stock at $20. Beautiful. So- and, and, and so, so that is a perfect example uh, the guy wasn't a sophisticated investor. He wouldn't have met any of the accredited investors. He was a university student with five grand in his jeans, and it turned into a fully paid house by the time he was 22. That's, uh, that's the kind of thing that happens, and that's exactly what you're talking about with respect to retail investors and the kind of, the kind of life-changing experiences that can happen. So the opportunity exists, I think, because I know that um, young people are invest have invested in cannabis, and they've some made some money on it, some lost the money they made on it, and um, and then there's the cryptos and all that stuff. So there is money out there, and gold has kind of been pushed to the back burner. Um, is there a, a stock that you think, if somebody was like looking at this, and that they should spend some time and energy kind of reading about and trying to learn about the gold market? Is there something that you know if you had to pick one? maybe in the junior side and then maybe one in the mid tier that, that somebody should spend some energy on. I'm not saying to recommend to pick it or buy it, but just to, if they should say, take a look at something to try to learn a little bit. Um, can you repeat the question? Was the question, is there a stock that I'm currently following? There's a no. number of stocks. Yeah. And no, I'm just saying like, if, if, if we're talking to, to people out there and saying, Hey, if you want to learn about the stock market, like in the gold sector, is there a couple of stocks that they're saying in the junior sector or, in the mid-tier or something or senior that they should spend some energy on and learn a little bit about. And you could be following it or whatever. I'm just not saying not to buy it, but I'm just saying to do some research on it and try to learn a little bit. Uh, I would I would say that the Hathaway Funds, uh, John Hathaway is a famous gold bug, uh, gold uh, gold stock manager. I think he and Sprott married up a few years, a uh, year back, but um, the the, uh, the the Hathaway group of funds are I mean all their website can give people an enormity of information, as does the Sprott weekly wrap up the Sprott site as well, hmm. and and they you know what you have to be careful of and I, I warn a lot of people about this is there's people that are true information givers, and there's people out there that are true misinformation or disinformation givers, where they they've got a hidden agenda. I always, I'm always leery of the, of the, of the service that uh, is telling you what they want you to put your money into, as in a specific name, stock name. Right. Because they're paid to do that nine times out of ten. Well, probably 9.9 mm-hmm. times out of ten. But the, 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 well, some of the sites that I mentioned to them just now will give you an ability to see how they pick the, what the selection process is like. And that was something I learned years and years ago. Um, not through any course I took, but you know, through watching the analysts that cover things. You, you, some of the major mining companies, major brokerage houses—I'm um, not going to mention any right now—but 
they've got analysts that have been doing this for 35 years, and you can see through their reports how they qualify and quantify the basket of companies yes. that they want their shareholders to invest in. And, um, you know, I think that um, actually some of the regional Vancouver houses that are still non-bank owned, um, you all know who they are, but they're the best because they've still got mining analysts that look at the smaller priced companies. And uh, that's something you don't get with the big banks these days. And George, you can say that too, is like it's tough to get money in the in the junior sector right now, I guess. Well, it, it, it is right now, but I, I think Mike would agree with me when these markets turn, it's amazing how quickly they turn. And uh, Excuse me for interrupting, George. Yesterday was a $6.8 million bought deal. <laughs> and that was just, that's in the middle of a market crash and a pandemic. Yes. Which, well, stock, which stock was that? <laughs> I can't remember it now. I just right. I saw it this morning. Right. Yeah, there, there, there's actually through this time there has been some money flowing. Absolutely. Yeah. When the, the best example I can give you is is the worst, what I call event risk crash to the sector ever. For me, it was 1997 April 1st when the Briex um, fraud was uncovered. Agreed. And, and and it just devastated the business. So I was doing business with Fidelity Investments out of Boston, you know, multi-billion dollar investment pool, pool of capital. And the, the main guy over there called me up and says, well, what are you going to do for the next five years? I said, why? He says, well, you're dead for five years. He says, there won't be one penny raised in your sector for five years. Actually, what he said was 10 years, and it was actually five years to the day in, 19, in, uh, in uh, 2002, that he, my phone rang and it was him. And he, and he said, what do you like? And the, the bear market was over. Yeah. And, and, but I got to tell you something, that in the period of time after that happened, from 2002 to 2003, the gold market and the financing market for gold, the private placement market, just absolutely flourished. It exploded. And that's what we're looking at right now here in, in March of 2020 you're going to see billions and billions of dollars put into the primarily the gold market. But I'm not selling copper and zinc and, and rhodium and all. What the, what, the, what, the, what the people have done in Washington and in Brussels is they have basically thrown the final gauntlet down on debasement, total abject currency debasement. They fear deflation over any other economic condition in the world because their little, their entire balance sheets of the banking system cannot withstand deflation because all the collateral deflates and they go out of business. They must inflate, and that's the steps that you've seen the governments take and the central banks take, and therein is the opportunity for all of us to take advantage of gold prices, which are still well below the all-time high in U.S. dollar terms, and in terms of the valuation on Canadian gold and silver producers, we're still way in the lower 25 percentile in terms of valuation per ounce. So well, you're, nobody's late, believe me. That sounds like a, that sounds like a good summary, Mike. And uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing your multiple decades of uh, experience with our <laughs> listeners. That's been a, a great discussion and. A lot of the things you said we could uh, follow up in the future, but uh, I think for now that's uh, a good place to wrap it up. And so we'd uh, really appreciate the time that you've taken with us today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And I've enjoyed it. And that has been another podcast on CanadianMarketWatch.com where myself, Jim Check, and George Sanders ask the question. If you would like to join us here on CanadianMarketWatch.com, reach out to us, contact us, and let us know that you want to be on the show. We'd love to hear from you.